Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Old Everald and Young James Talk Politics, recording on Saturday night because Everald was uh, jet-setting around this morning with a family in from the UK. How are you, Ed? Oh, well, I'm fine, mate. I've had one of those days. I went up to the church to work at the market day we have up there to raise money for various things in the community, and then I shot through to my this great family party where my, my little great-granddaughter is one, and my grandson, who's a banker in New York, uh, a young banker in New York who haven't seen for three years before COVID, and he came back for our little girl's party. And so I had the pleasure of uh, seeing a member of my family that COVID separated me from for three years. So it's been a good, uh, a good day. And you've had a good time, James. You're, you're doing well? Uh, yep, wonderful day in the midst of my final exams for the semester now, so working through them. And your final exams for the, your degree, aren't they? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, well, a big party about that. Well, look, let's get stuck into a few things. I thought we, we ought to talk about the budget, Chalmers' budget and, and Dutton's uh, reply. Now, being the democratic person that I am, I'm going to let you start off. We'll deal with Chalmers first, then come to Dutton. Now, now what's your view of the Chalmers' budget? Um, it's, it's interesting. Like, I, I know it's, you know, it is... A technically a full federal budget, but I'd be sort of hesitant to call it a federal budget, really. Like, you know, the, the real federal budgets normally are much hyped affair. There are new, different things, like previously unannounced plans, secret plans coming to fruition and that sort of thing, you know, new announcements and that. Really, what this was, rather than a budget, was just more, um, obviously, the Liberal Party had their budget when they were last in power in May 2022. This was more a a redo of that budget um, with labour policy goals in mind. So there were things like um, cutting the decisions taken but not yet announced, which are a thing which in fancy budget speak stands for like the stuff that a party has agreed to give grants to and invest in but hasn't announced to the public yet. So they got, they, you know, turfed out those. They've committed to cutting money from like private consultants and that and putting money back into public service which was an election promise and, a, in my opinion, really, really, really good one because a strong public service is necessary for a good country. You don't want to be outsourcing everything to the private sector and, you know, to the Liberal Party donors in the private sector, which are what most of those consultancy firms are. Like most budgets have, you know, the, the budget goodies and the winners and losers and all that fanfare and that. This, to me, was more like a, a, a pure, almost like an accounting exercise, a balance sheet exercise where Jim Chalmers has come in He's seen, you know, the, the book he's been left by Frydenberg and Morrison, and he's said, right, to be able to do what we want to do in the actual budget we're going to do in May of next year, we got to do like a little sort of right the ship, announce our policy plan, set ourselves up for the next budget sort of thing. And I mean, that, they, that's what's perfectly in line with what they promised at the election. Labor didn't promise any big spending plans in their first year, first three months, first six months of government. Um, so I think this was just sort of Jim Chalmers. It, it was like the, the less important part was the budget, more the address to the nation, the principle of it to say we're in power now. This is well, what I, we're I, I think I've been firm now, James. I think since they came into power, there's been a certain the world economic, it wasn't just a matter of taking over the books of the previous guys, whether they were good or bad. The things that happened in the world since yep. the election in May, the war in Ukraine has gone on a lot longer. There's an energy crisis all around the world. 
uh, that uh, hit, hit Australia, there was a need to reassure the public that something was being done about it. And, uh, but there were events that need to be caught up to now. Uh, I, I think I thought it was a balanced budget. I know Jim Chalmers personally, I've known him for 15 years. I first met him when he was uh, an economic senior, was chief of staff, finally to, uh, to Wayne Swan when he was treasurer. And he was with Wayne Swan when the great financial crisis hit at the 2007 or whenever, eight, 2008, whenever it was. And, and he had that experience and he's been training for this job since. And I find him to be a, an intelligent, sincere bloke. He, he makes mistakes. He, he readily, one of the few politicians I know that will readily admit that he's made a mistake. And so, but he's, uh, so he came out with, he, he, in my view, it's a balance of, the main thing that he got hit with by the media and then by the social media was the fact that he had no handouts in it for people on fixed incomes, uh, uh, self-funded retirees doing it tough, people who hadn't had a rise in pay in their jobs for a while, and they're all hit by uh, uh, inflation. People just don't have as much money as they as they as they've had, you know, before, you know, and and so uh, uh, there was a, a bit of an outcry to say, look, the budget did all sorts of things for the upper end of society and their businesses and, you know, whatever, but the poor guys and the ones missed out. Now, because Jim Chambers explained that if you suddenly gave pension rises, uh, uh, superannuation, uh, uh, that you're going to invest more in your superannuation or whatever, if he'd done all, he would have kept the inflationary processes going. Now, the average person, they say, well, we don't care about whether the Inflation going on. We just want to pay the bills when we go down the supermarket. And I don't know that Chalmers could have done much different about that. What do you think? Well, I suppose the only thing that could have, should have, would have been done that I would think ought to be done and you can use as a way to stop the inflationary crisis in a way is putting like a super profits tax on, um, you know, on companies who are price gouging consumers during this cost of living. So we're seeing the petrol companies, the energy companies, all making record profits at the moment. Um, so one way we could tamp down on the inflationary crisis would be to put a super profits tax on those industries. I think, um, you know, Norway, which is a country very similar to us in that they have um, a lot of their government, like, you know, a lot of their big companies, their world companies are resource companies because there's a lot of offshore oil in Scandinavia. And they have like a 70% super windfall tax on these companies when they make um, super normal profits. I think we have like... Um, you know, a, a 10, 15, 20% um, levy on these companies. So what we I really put up it. I think Chalmers might hit that next May. You've got to have a budget next May, get back in yeah. line. And I got a feeling that by that time, that those profits from the guys with the inflation, and I've got a feeling he's going to hit them then in that regard. So anyway, he made a statement, and, for good, and I thought he made it well, and for good or bad, it's created that debate in the community, but at least there's, a feeling that the government's in charge and things are happening. Now, let's look at Peter Dutton's reply. Now, first of all, I didn't expect, I sat up and I actually went on Twitter and said I was going to watch Dutton's reply and I got piles and piles of responses saying, everyone, haven't you got anything better to do? For God's sake, everyone, you know, don't listen to that. Well, so I sent back things saying, how the hell can you work out the political scene if you don't listen to the whole political scene? How the hell can you do so Anyway, I poured myself a good scotch and I listened to Peter Dutton. Now, for him, I thought 
he made one of the better speeches of his life. He doesn't make good speeches. He's got no personality, really. And I actually thought in terms of his presentation, forget the content, he probably did better than I thought. Having then looked at his presentation, he spent all his time dwelling in the past rather than looking for the future. I didn't see a single thing. All he did was he picked up this business about, you know, the pensioners can't pay their bills. Not, but everything he said looked back to the past, not to the future. And, and I thought he missed a glorious opportunity to say, look, if I'd been charmers, this is what I would have said. So he didn't do that. Now, what, what did you feel? It was just, um, yeah, the, the, the speech itself was, you know, there, there was nothing... Um, particularly, I suppose, scary, for want of a better word, out of that speech. It's not like Peter Dutton went into full Peter Dutton mode, you know, blaming refugees and immigrants for the ills that um, white Australians face, which is the Peter Dutton normal MO. But the um, it was just, if, if you told um, someone who follows Australian politics, you know, write what you think Peter Dutton would say in a budget reply speech, it was pretty much exactly what you'd expect out of a Peter Dutton budget reply speech. Um, there was very little vision and innovation. It was just, it was a, attack, attack, attack. Um, it was sort of all the, the basic level, you know, the, the, the talking points that lack nuance. Um, it's, it's clear, I think we've seen from the first, what is it, October now, election in May, so five months of the Peter Dutton-led Liberals. Um, there's no nuance there. There's no. There's no policy depth. There's no analysis. Um, yeah. You know, say what you want about. Yeah, I thought he made. Yeah, I thought he made a. Uh, he had a big opportunity to make a name for himself, and I yeah. think he fluttered. But anyway, let's, let's let's move on from that to, to the world scene, and we've had this fellow Sunak uh, uh, become prime minister of England, and trust go after. 44 days, the lowest in the history of the entire history of England, which as we all know is a long time. And she obviously totally was unable to handle the situation. In the end, first of all, I felt angry with her at the start. And then in the end, I thought, look, she's done her best. And it's simply, she's way, 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 way off the planet. And ta-da and goodbye, and I hope you have a happy day. Sunak came in and... Uh, he wasn't my choice. I would have gone for Mordaunt, the, the other female in the race. So I, I think it's got something going. But anyway, he's, he's there. He, he's one of the wealthiest blokes ever to be the prime minister. What's interesting is that he's a Hindu. And when you come to think of how England subjected India to 300 years of plundering them, and here's a Hindu comes back and he's in number 10 Downing Street. I was saying to myself, Mahatma Gandhi's going to get out of his grave and type like hell. You know, to see this, uh, this happen. And he showed his religion role. You might have noticed when it, it happened to be that Hindu day when they light candles all around the world. I forget what day they got. Diwali. He had some candles at the door of number 10 and he knelt down and lit his candles. And I thought, well, that's, that's really telling him. Anyway, he's been an investment banker. One presumes he knows a bit about money. The speech he made when he got there was a fairly humble and determined speech. He couldn't do less than, than that. But the fact is, we have a Prime Minister of England who has been elected by 8,000 mainly white guys who decided, and, and the people of England didn't get a go. And I was hoping that King Charles would say, now look, fellas, say to Sunak, look, I'm shaking hands with your mate, but I want an election call. So the people of England got to say about this, now good luck, because 
my handshake lasts until the election and I want to call in 30 days. Now, Prince Charles, I think he would have been clapped all over England, but he didn't do it. Now, what, how do you see the scene? I think it's, um, like you say, it's absolutely huge that he's like the first, um, you know, non, non-white um, PM of the UK yeah. and props to Sunak for that. And I mean, I think what we might get out of Sunak, it's clear if you listen to him speak, he's, he's at least at a base level intelligent. Now, what they, what England has just had with the the Johnson and the Trust period, was like, um, you know, in Australia during the Abbott and the Morrison years. Whereas I think under Sunak, it might be more something like Australia in the Turnbull years, where though I don't agree with the personal politics of the leader, you can at least tell they're a vaguely intelligent and competent person who is good at the job of being a prime minister in the sense of. They're not going to do something so brazenly stupid they crash the pound and have to resign after 44 days. Um, in terms of calling an election, I mean, as you know, we know, just like in Australia, uh, in the UK, they have the Westminster system where you elect your local member and not the leader of your party. And that's how it works in theory. But the problem, of course, is that 2019 election, like Boris Johnson ran it like a presidential election. That election, people weren't voting for... Um, the Tory party, they were voting for Boris and voting to get Brexit done with Boris. So yeah. in, in the sense of, yes, you know, mechanistically, they all still voted for their local MP. UK politics under Boris, um, just like Australian politics under Morrison, really, was very presidentialized, where the, the leader of the party took on that cult of personality status and the people who voted for that party were voting for that person rather than the party itself. And with that in mind, I think it's um, it's quite fair to say that um, Rishi might, you know, owe it to the, the good people of England to call an election. One thing I'd like to remark on, on the topic of Sunak is um, Australia is a much more culturally and linguistically diverse country than the UK. Um, I cannot imagine a, regrettably, a person of colour being elected prime minister in this country in the next 20 years. And pardon my French, but it shits me to say that because, you know, we, we are allegedly a great multicultural country, a melting pot which prides ourselves on, um, on diversity. And yet you look at a country like the UK, the, the old, funny, cobweb, you know, cobweb and moss-covered colonial UK with a person of colour as their prime minister. And you, you just can't, can't foresee that here. And until the, the last election, we had like the least diverse parliament in the Western world. Um, and yet here we are, you know, other countries are just lapping us for diversity. So, right, well, now that's a very good point. You say, I, I can't see a, a, a coloured person, and there's not one in Parliament that I can note at the moment who's probably got the numbers to get anywhere. And that's a very good, uh, that's a very good point. But it shows that the tumult of politics and, uh, you know, what's happening. And, and, and that was a, you know, a, a thing in England that, uh, uh, you know, um, one hopes that the country will settle down into some mm, sort of... Absolutely. Not only got to fix up inflation and all this, he's still got the hangover of Brexit that's still unresolved in so many ways. And, and there you are. Well, let's move over to America for a few minutes here. With our USA now, and the, the midterm elections happen on Tuesday week, I think it is, and uh, yep. they happen every two years that they were all... There's a presidential election every four years and midterms every two years. Uh, and 
it's a tight run race. Are, are the Republicans going to gain control of the House and the Senate? Now, Pelosi has been Speaker for a fair while and uh, and she's in a rough campaign. Now, all of a sudden, some lunatic breaks into the Pelosi House in San Francisco and belts up Pelosi's husband, Paul, with a hammer and so brutally that he wound up in hospital. And he claimed that he was... Uh, he went there thinking that she was going to be there and it was her he was going to belt with a hammer, but apparently he got the story wrong and she was somewhere else. She was actually making a speech somewhere. So he built this bloke up and and uh, and uh, this shows how the violence that Trump generated on January the 6th when his mob stormed the Congress now permeates into national life everywhere where a fellow turns up with a hammer to belt some bloke because he doesn't like him, he picks a high profile fellow. Now, I think there'll be a big sympathy vote for Pelosi in, in the, the, the November election, whoever this loony is, uh, it gave it there. But the Trump like, mob got on social media later to say that it was all a put-up job, that in fact Paul Pelosi bashed himself with a hammer in order to get a sympathy vote for, for Nancy. Now, now, you can't get much more nutty than that, mate. Now, what, what do you make of that situation? Yeah, so as you point out, the fellow who broke into the Pelosi household was some, you know, QAnon, election-denying, um, stop-the-steal, Trump Republican guy. Um, it's the January 6th, I feel, was like an inflection point, right? Like, let, let us make no mistake, Donald Trump called on his supporters to storm the Capitol building and prevent Mike Pence from ratifying the election result because he was unhappy with how it turned out. Like Donald Trump essentially did real domestic terrorism. Like not right. like let, let's let's call it what it is here. It was an attempt at a coup. It was an it was domestic terrorism. Donald Trump should be behind bars for treason for the rest of his mortal life. Um, and the fact that he faced no repercussions essentially to this point for what happened on January six, he got banned from Twitter for inciting violence and you know he might come back now that elon musk is in charge we'll talk about that later because elon's my bad guy of the week but the um he he incited his supporters to storm the capital and prevent a democratic election from being ratified because he was unhappy with the outcome that's dictatorship stuff and that that there were no consequences from that sure a couple guys on the ground got arrested and charged but for the people who incited it who started it who kicked it off the fact that they face no consequences just goes to show. Um, if, if, you, if you're not going to face consequences for that, then what do you have to do to meet those consequences? Well, now, here, here's the point, James. If Nancy Pelosi's party, the, the Democrats, lose control of the Congress, lose control of the Senate, the Republicans, when they get in, will call off the whole investigation on January 6th at the moment. The Pelosi team have got Trump supposed to come and testify, and, and they're trying to, to delay it until after. You see, they believe that you know when, when the other, if the Republicans get in, they call it off, and Scott and, and Trump will get away. So it's terribly important that Pelosi's team wins these midterm elections, oh, so yes. they can say, "Well, right, Donald, you got us for the next two years, but we're going to have this hearing." And, and so there's a lot riding on it, and and. and Pelosi also got some good marks for going to Taiwan and, and a lot of the right-wing people in America approve of Taiwan not going to China. So it's a pretty brave act she got from that because the, the Chinese are banned of never going back again. I don't know that she's going to lose too much sleep over that. But the point, the point of the matter is these are 
crucial midterm election, don't they? I mean, let's let's make no mistake. I'm I'm a, I'm a big critic of the Democrat Party. I think even like they're they're the nominally left wing party, but your average Democrat probably sits about where Malcolm Turnbull sits politically. So they have really like a, a far right wing party and a centre right wing party in that country. But what we have here is a choice between essentially a, a centre right wing party, the Democrats, and a party, the Republicans, who are intent on election denying stripping the vote from black people, sending women's rights back to the 1400s, installing like an evangelical Christian theocracy in that country. And they're not sly or secret about that. They are very explicit that that is what they want to do. They are very explicit that they want to ban abortions, that in some states they want to give states the right to criminalise gay marriage and you know gay relations again, um, that they want to restrict gender-affirming care for transgender people or take it away altogether, that they want to bring back mandatory prayer in schools, um, you know, they want to bring guns onto school campuses and all this stuff. Like, they're, they're not hiding their true colours, the Republicans. They're very, very uh, open with what they want to do. And yet, according to the polls, a majority of Americans might just go for that in a week and a half time, which is very, very scary. Well, certainly they are elections to, uh, you know, for us to watch. Well, let's give all you know, the good guys and bad guys because they might take one of them that I've got might take a little bit of time. But, uh, you know, the good guys, I actually thought that Albo and Perrottet, and mind you, I don't think that Albo and Perrottet are actually terribly good mates, but Albo and Perrottet turned up in Lismore together and they went to people along the riverbank and said, you know, it's time after 20 floods. We're going to buy your house and turn this into a park and put you somewhere else. And I think they started the trend in Australia that wherever people are in low-lying areas where they can't even ensure they have that there must be a progressive public buying but where you turn them into golf courses or do 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 uh, whatever. But we must, when they come to that, never ever let a property developer develop a flood-prone area ever in their lives. Those flood-prone areas were all developed mainly by some property developer making a whole pile of data and leaving those people in a precarious position. So I think Albano and Perrottet did the right thing there. How do you see it, Jack? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I mean, you know, the, the word on the street when Morrison was in government that even though they were on the same party, Perrottet and Morrison, or any state premier and Morrison for that matter, just couldn't get along because Morrison was just such an abrasive dickhead. But... <laughs> With Albo here and Perrottet, you can at least see they're both willing to put this, like their partisan divide aside to do like a federal and state partnership with these really important issues. So it's good to see that level of pragmatism. Obviously, um, you know, I don't think either of us particularly fancy Dom's politics, but you, you've got to give credit when he's willing to come to the table with something like this because, you know, he, he loves talking about how he's the small government man, he hates government intervention and that sort of thing, and yet here he is working with Albo to help the government buy back houses and rehome people. So credit to both of them. It's a good guy. Yeah, it's a good, yeah, well, good guy of the week. Um, so my good guy of the week is um, it's a couple of people um, headed up especially by Tony uh, Tony Armstrong, the ABC sports presenter. Um, so as people may have heard uh, this week, 15-year-old Cassius Marsh, a young Indigenous boy, was uh, jumped, murdered on his way home from school in what is suspected to be a racial hate crime. Yeah. Um, earlier, just just today, yesterday, yesterday, um, a, um, a mentally impaired Indigenous girl in a Queensland school 
uh, was tasered by police. Um, so we've had two really gross incidences of, um, you know, racially motivated um, attacks on Indigenous, young Indigenous Australians over the past two weeks. And um, Tony Armstrong gave a really, really moving speech on the ABC, um, just talking about that, like, you know, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. And I'm, I'm glad he was able to draw attention to it because this should be, I know there's plenty going on, you know, budgets, Rishi Sunak, Joe Biden, Paul Pelosi, all this stuff we've talked about. Um, but like we're in modern day Australia, 2022, we are still seeing racially motivated murders of young Indigenous children. We are still seeing police going into schools and tasering mentally impaired Indigenous kids. This is something that shouldn't be happening in, you know, 1970, let alone 2022, and yet it still is. Um, and so credit to Tony Armstrong and all the others who've been talking about it online, in the media, in print, on the news, et cetera, and drawing attention to it because we, we have to do better as a country. Well, that was, that was, and it was, I mean, I didn't actually hear his piece, but I read about it. And, mm -hmm. you know, that, 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 that was, that's a good comment, James. And that's something we've got to not let drop at that. Now, now in terms of bad guys, now, I'm not saying... Uh, that either of these people, but the Brittany Higgins, and most people know that the Brittany Higgins trial, but it's actually the trial of a fellow called Bruce Lehman, who was alleged to have raped her in Parliament a while back. And the whole case has been prejudiced for a long time. And so after five days of deliberation, it's called off not just because the, the jury couldn't come to a decision, but some jurors brought in some evidence that he shouldn't have. I mean, there's a good young lawyer, you might get me right on that because there's no way that every juror that comes in can blot from their mind all the things they've heard before they got into the place or they might have heard during the course of the trial is still in their mind, even if they don't say it. And, and so anyway, it gets called off. Now, my understanding is that Lehman could only be convicted of rape if it was beyond reasonable doubt that he did it. Now, you've got to say to yourself that after a jury, which we presume were intelligent people, five days or six hours a day, they couldn't decide whether it was rape or not. You've got to presume that nothing was ever going to be produced beyond reasonable doubt. And so if the crime that trial had gone on, I think that, that Lehman was probably going to get exonerated. Now, that may or may not have been a good the right decision, but I think it was heads. That's what I think was, you know, is going to happen now. We've got two things now. Brittany Higgins uh, has, has gone through a pretty traumatic trial where she was in the stand and he wasn't, and they hauled her, and she went through a pretty rough time. And so she was quite emotionally upset when she came out and she made a speech, and this is what I wanted. Her lawyer should have told her not to make that speech because she basically criticised the judge and the justice system in front of the media and she could wind up, you can tell me whether she's in contempt of court. On the other hand, Lehman gets around with a lot of the community still believing he was a rapist. And one of the problems was he went into that trial with most of the nation thinking he was guilty before it even started, and he hadn't had an opportunity to defend himself. So the whole thing wasn't much good, was it? Now, you're my legal advisor. Where are we going with this thing? No, I mean, I, I think it should have been a judge-alone trial since the start. I'm a big exactly. believer in judge-alone trials. I, I do. Look, I, I think I've said it before. I understand the, the old-timey justification for the jury system. Juries came about because justice was originally dispensed from the hand of the king and the king alone. Then the king had his court of judges who dispensed justice on his behalf. 
And the people said, well, this isn't right. You guys are all, you know, the nobles and the elites of the realm. I want my peers to judge me. Nowadays, in the era of like employed professional judges rather than judges deriving some authority from, um, you know, the king or God or wherever um, that authority came from, I, I don't really see much of a need for the jury system and especially these public interest criminal trials. I mean, in, in the era of social media, there's just much too much for 12 people to be able to block out of their minds. Now, what this jury did was especially egregious. He, he brought in academic articles about the behaviour of sexual assault victims into the jury room, which is obviously, you know, after being told 17 times by Chief Justice McCallum, you can't do that. The fact that this juror still went and did it, um, not good, really not good, quite the opposite, quite bad, in fact. Um, but it's it, it's a inherent flaw in the jury system in the age of social media, where all this info is accessible just at, you know, at a few fingertips. If this was 1991, a juror couldn't go and just pull a bunch of academic articles about that out of the top of his hat. But nowadays, it's it's just so easy. Well, so, and so it, you know, it's, it's all a bit of an unsatisfactory thing. Yeah. And, and I'm wondering whether either the chief prosecutor is going to go ahead and have the death trial. And I'm wondering whether Brittany Higgins herself doesn't say, well, I've had enough. And so and there's a bit to, you know, to play out in this thing. And where that all leads in the whole era of women's justice, Robert, I mean, if I ever get hauled before a court, and I hope it doesn't happen, I'm going to ask, can I be tried by a judge alone? I will not put my faith in an emotional jury of people who are legal amateurs. I would just not, don't want my life to be hindered on that. But we can have a debate about that another, another day because we're running out of time. Now, you're going to say a good guy, a bad guy, rather, who's the bad guy? But before I get to my bad guy, I'll just make one last comment on that. Um, just to draw, I've said it before a couple of times, to draw attention again just to how inadequate our criminal justice system is as it stands for victims and survivors of sexual assault. Because for the reasons you point out, the, the trauma um, Brittany Higgins has gone through, if, you know, for sexual assault survivors out there watching this unfold, it, it's a, it disinclines you to come forward because you wouldn't want to be put in the same, same position and same shoes. Um, it, it's just horrible. We do need to find a way to address that. My bad guy of the week is Elon Musk. Uh, his his purchase of Twitter finally went through. He claims he wants Twitter. He claims to be a free speech absolutist. He claims Twitter is a. What the hell, what the hell does that mean? Well, it's funny um, because Elon Musk is a noted glass jaw. Uh, he regularly fires whistleblowers um, from his company. He blocks people on Twitter who are mean to him and make jokes at his expense. Um, he's got a terrible labour rights record. He busts unions within his company. He doesn't like his workers unionising. So for someone who holds himself out as a free speech absolutist, there's not a lot of free speech going on in places he has power. What it seems to mean, though, um, is he wants right-wing hate speech to be brought back to Twitter. Um, within 12 hours of Elon Musk buying the company, there was a 500% increase of people using the N-word on Twitter and not getting punished for it. 500%. Because all the bad people, all the people who were banned from Twitter for hate speech, um, for inciting violence, all the January 6 types who back on Twitter was under its previous ownership said, no, look, we can't have you people anymore. Those are the sorts of people he wants to bring back to the platform um, because he's a lunatic. And for a, he's another one of those quote-unquote self-made billionaires who had a lot handed to him from his parents. 
Um, his dad was the owner of an apartheid emerald mine and a big investor in a bunch of mines in South Africa. Um, young Elon probably really never had to work a day in his life. And now he's monopolizing social media just like the Murdochs do. Uh, it's quite the worry. And we're going to see on Twitter, where we both spend probably too much of our time, um, that, that right-wing hate speech may be coming back, which is quite the, uh, quite the worry going forward. Well, well, and I think it's come back. I mean, the main reason I get on Twitter is not to influence the population. I know that most, most of the members of the Australian Parliament have a look at me on Twitter, and they're the only ones I care. I mean, I, I might, I'd like to see James Morgan having a go, mind you, but I know that most pollies have a look at what's everyone ranting about, and so it's a way for me to reach members of the Parliament. If it got to the point where the whole thing became obscene, well, uh, you know, well, well, I'm, I'm out of it. But it also with Musk, I mean, he takes over and he goes into the office of the CEO, makes him clean out his desk on the top and let some bloke escort him outside to make sure he goes and he's gone. And same with the CFO of the CEO and with the media there and whatever. You, and you say to yourself, surely there could be a dignified way that when you say you walk in, you say to bloke, now look, man, you're out, I'm taking over. And uh, now just go quietly, you know, just go home tonight as if you're going home tonight. Nobody says a word, but don't come back, mate. And, and that'd be a nice way. Why have you got a toss about with the cameras there? Does that make you a good guy? Uh, it's, he's just such a loser. Like the, the one thing he wants is for people to think he's funny and cool. And unfortunately for him, it's the one thing his hundreds of billions of dollars can't buy. Uh, I've noticed that in, in the, the contract of the Twitter CEO, he had a clause basically saying, if I get made redundant or fired on the spot for not for misconduct, just if I get capriciously fired, the company has to pay me $42 million. Uh, so it cost Elon $42 million to fire that CEO, and he only found out about that after he did it. So um, <laughs> but for, a, for the richest man in the world, he is the greatest evidence you could show someone that uh, wealth, money does not equal intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, so, well, it's really not funny about it, but we've got these sort of guys. Well, it's been an interesting week, and there's some more interesting stuff uh, coming up in, uh, you know, in all sorts of ways. I'd like to talk uh, next week for a bit on how the whole thing's limbering up with the voices referendum. I think now Jim Chalmers' budget, they've put an allocation of money through to, yep. to, to fight it. Where is the referendum going? Uh, Palmer and... Uh, and um, uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, what's what that? Palmer and, and Hanson propose it. And strangely, the Greens are going to oppose it because they want a treaty rather than a, a voice. And, and so we got the funniest thing of the Greens being on the same side as Hanson. I got to have a couple of whiskeys to get myself around that. But, but you know, that's. So I'd like to talk about all the implications of that. Plus, whatever great things happen during the week, we'll have a few more prime ministers around the world tossed out. You never know, Elton Musk might take, might take a heart attack between now and then we can talk about it <laughs> next weekend. Oh, just like to say really quickly on that, no, the, the Greens did come out the other week and said they are fully behind it, um, thankfully. Um, oh, that that was, uh, it, too, yeah, it, it ended up being a bit of a furphy by um, the Australian looking to sow a bit of division against The Voice. Uh, Colour me shop, Rupert Murdoch doesn't want The Voice. <laughs> ah, right. Oh, well, that, well, that's what I'm relieved about, that because oh, yeah. that was going to be a fight. Anyway. There'll be plenty to talk about next week, James. Well, all the best in your final exam. You keep knocking them over, and uh, well, it's another step towards you being the Chief Justice one day and then the Prime Minister. We'll do them one at a time. 
Anyway, uh, good to talk to you. We'll chat again next week. Thanks, Sav. Ciao for now. And thanks for listening, everyone. Bye. Ciao.